Welcome everyone to the Seek Go Create podcast. This is Tim Winders, your host. I'm a coach for business owners, executives, and leaders. My wife and I, we consider ourselves nomads and we currently travel, live, and work in our 39-foot RV. I am recording my portion of this podcast from the passenger seat of my mobile office. I do want to make sure that everyone listens to the end of the podcast. We will include ways that you can continue the conversation that we start today by connecting with us directly. And we encourage that. We really, really want you to do that. So listen, today we have Rashmi Aaron as our guest. And Rashmi is a corporate and motivational speaker. She is, and this is quotes from her, a recovering lawyer and investment banker, a woman leader and an entrepreneur in her community. Rashmi is now an internationally recognized keynote, motivational speaker, and a TEDx presenter. I just watched her TEDx talk yesterday. It is phenomenal. And uh, she also works with clients that include the FBI, Sotheby's, MGM Resorts, and Columbia Law School. During the housing boom, this is a fascinating story, and we're going to be discussing this some. During the housing boom back in 08, up, up, up to 08, she was recruited to work with a local real estate developer who later engaged in questionable business practices. Her involvement resulted in a six-month prison sentence in federal prison for bank fraud alongside a multi-billion dollar judgment against future earnings. It required community service and three years supervised release. And I just want to say, wow, that's what that's what actually attracted me. She's brilliant in so many ways. But I was doing some research on people that spent time in federal prison. So anyway, Rashmi, welcome to the Seat Go Create podcast. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here, too. First question I always like to ask is just a real simple, I give the bio and obviously it's got some things that we're really going to dive into later, but what do you do now? What, what's your elevator pitch? We bump into each other on the elevator and I say, Hey, what do you do? I would say that I, I share a really vulnerable story with people and I, I kind of get courageous uh, to share something that I think most people wouldn't share about. And I'm all about transparency and authenticity. And I've had the honor of now being able to uh, sort of extrapolate the lessons that I learned and be have the opportunity to work with like C-suite, um, executive leadership teams, large corporations, associations. So I typically am either a keynote speaker uh, and or I lead workshops um, for all levels and types of organizations as well as sizes. That's what I do. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So, so you've used what could have been some pretty tough experiences to, to really take a message. And to me, listen, it gets my attention, you know, and, and I've always told people that I, a lot of the things I've been through, I would not wish it on anyone else, but I'm thankful that I went through it with, with, I'm, I'm almost hesitating in saying that would, would that qualify for where you're at or is that a little bit too strong? No, it's actually right on point. I agree. You know, it's not like I want or wish for anyone to have to go through prison, right? Or to lose their bar license, which happened to me and lose all my money, right? So I've gone through a lot of really difficult, difficult circumstances. I've definitely been brought down to my knees. But I will say that I have changed in a way that I never expected. And I'm happier than I thought I could be. And I've really kind of found the ability to be real. So I actually tell people, you know what, I had to lose my freedom to have complete freedom, um, which means I just live in complete transparency and I'm, I'm, you know, you get what you get with me. Yeah. All right. So there's a 
couple of, I don't even know if I could call them elephants in the room, especially since we're, you know, on a video call and recording, but there are two things that I, that just jumped out at me as you were speaking. Um, one is I don't think we can, we can go into a lot of the ethics training and talk about things like slippery slope, the eth ethical vigilance, which is a great term that you use in your TED talk that I really, I, I meditated and really said ethical vigilance, ethical vigilance. That is fascinating. But you just brought up something that at the time we're recording this, we'll go ahead and let people know we're, we're in the month of May 2020. And I know people may be listening to this much later. And we are hopeful that the situations that people are in with the economy and health and, and, and the, so many things that are changing in the world that we're in are, are going to be adjusted. However, you just said that you lost your money. You were disbarred. You lost your identity, your role, everything that you had. I think people are scratching their heads, having a difficult time understanding how you can say that as lightly as you just did. Give a little bit more and talk to the person that's going, I can't fathom that. Well, it wasn't easy. Uh, it took me a while to get to this place of peace, right? At the beginning, I would say I was incredibly angry and full of negative energy and bitter for a lot of reasons, you know, why weren't other people indicted, you know, in my case. There's a lot of reasons why I had this sort of sense of unfairness. Uh, and, and I was really fortunate. I had a ton of support around me. And I think a lot of that came from my taking ownership. And we can get into that later. Uh, but I really will say that I had love and family support. And one specific uncle said to me, when we, we kind of sat my, I'm from India, so we sat my Indian community around uh, with my parents and told them right after I got indicted. And a very wise uncle was sitting next to me on the couch. There were about 50 people there. And he looked at me and he said, in Hindi, he said, Betty, which means daughter. He said, Betty, until you realize that this is happening, it's not happening to you, it's happening for you, you won't find peace until that point. And you know, it, this was right after I got indicted, so I wasn't there yet. And I wasn't ready to, to, to really embrace what that meant. Um, and I would say four to five months after that, I, once I decided to plea, I found this place of complete peace. And then that meant that whatever was happening in my life, I was going to take it, and I was going, you know, I, I believe in life, we have in every moment, three options. You can accept what you're going through, you can enjoy what you're going through, or you can be enthusiastic what you're going through. But being negative and bitter is not an option. And I think as a mother, I had a responsibility to also stand up for my children and to show them what life is like and what you're, how you live through really difficult circumstances. I mean, we're living in a stage right now where I know so many people are facing you know, loss of income, unemployment, uh, health, obviously health challenges or family health challenges. And, and it's hard. And sometimes you kind of have to come to a place of peace and, and try to see the good. Uh, and that was what I tried to do in that moment. I would say part of that is I also have faith in myself and my abilities. So yes, I lost my bar license. Yes, obviously I lost uh, a lot of income and my ability to make income in, in the way that I was used to making it. And I believe in myself and have enough faith in, in my ability to bounce back. 
So, you know, whether you want to call it grit or resilience, I call it, I'm indomitable. That's sort of how I describe myself. Like I cannot be defeated. This is what I believe about myself. And so that innate strength um, has allowed me to sort of overcome all of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's a work in progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was good because that's where I was about to go because hindsight really helps all of us. And and I've shared very openly on the podcast about our journey through the same situations that you had. Didn't include prison, but you know, bankruptcy, foreclosure, losing your home, all of those things are relative, I guess, yeah, difficult. And and I've actually attempted to reflect back on it and ask myself, what were my takeaways along the way? What were my plateaus? What were my, you know, progressions? And so I'll kind of ask you a similar question. You know, you, you mentioned your wise uncle, everyone needs a wise uncle. You mentioned your wise uncle giving you advice that at the time he gave it to you, you probably didn't receive it. You, you made note of it, but you didn't receive it. So, and, and maybe along, maybe it might be helpful for the audience here for us to just discuss a few facts along the way. Let's go back and maybe do a quick timeline, but, but I don't want it to be just a timeline. I would love for you, especially now years later to kind of say at this point, I was, I was angry at this point I was in denial, <laughs> you know? So, so maybe just a real quick, because what I want to get to is I want to get to where you, you talk about the peace, the self-forgiveness. I want to get to where you reposition yourself to use all of this for good. But right now I want to give a little bit of background. Is that okay? Sure. Sure. All right. So go. Okay. So I graduated from law school. Well, so let's go back. I grew up in Miami. Uh, I, my parents, like I said, are from India, so I, and I am the oldest of three daughters, uh, which comes along with, with that comes a lot of pressure, self-imposed and culturally, I think, sort of just set within our societal requirements, uh, as well as being an Indian, I think there's even extra immigrant pressure and, you know, just hardworking pressure. My parents are very super educated and, you know, lots of graduate degrees. Uh, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, graduated with highest honors. I moved to New York and I worked on Wall Street for a few years. And then I went to law school at Columbia and uh, ultimately graduated from Columbia a Kent Scholar, which is essentially like the highest, you know, sort of honor, I guess you could get at Columbia. From there, I went to California and practiced for about a year and then moved back to Miami. And I had a couple of jobs. I worked for a litigation boutique, a small little law firm. I worked for the government. I was a county attorney for a few years. And then in 2004, I left and started my own practice. Uh, and, and it was around the time I had, I had sort of recently gotten married. I knew I wanted to have children. Uh, and so I left. I started my own real estate, basically real estate title transactional practice. And I was pounding the pavement. Now, I will tell you that at that time, since you want the details of moments, uh, my husband at the time was a firefighter. So I was uh, the major breadwinner, right? And with that came a lot of pressure. Uh, pretty quickly, we had two children, and in 2007, so if you take yourselves back to sort of the heyday of real estate, right, the market is before the market crashed, before the sort of real estate recession that happened, I was, uh, I had this opportunity to meet a real estate developer, and, you know, of course, hindsight's 2020. but then I thought, wow, if I can get a developer to be a client, I'm a solo practitioner, I'm a little, you know, I had five people that worked for me. I thought, and I was really out there hustling, 
I was like spending a lot of time going to networking meetings and, and doing business development and bringing in clients and I was doing great, right? There was no, I wasn't having any problems. But when I had an opportunity to meet a real estate developer, I thought, well, if I can get one big client with volume business, that would mean more time, more financial stability, which ultimately to me as a mom meant more time with my kids. Yeah, so that's how I saw it. Uh, I walked in to a, a small office on Miami Beach, North Miami Beach, and I was introduced to the, the developers, two right-hand guys, right? And I'm, gonna, I'm telling you these details because they're relevant. The developer himself sat in another room. Okay, he never came into that meeting. I, I was introduced to him later, but he didn't come into that actual meeting. The two right-hand guys, uh, and, and, and by the way, I'm gonna give you a lot of details and I'm saying these things not to offend others, but it's it sort of, I would say it was relevant to my thought process and what was going on and why I trusted as easily as I did or why I shouldn't have, you know? So when I walked in, these two individuals were, and I won't disclose what religion they were of, but they were wearing uh, externally items that reflected to me exactly what religion they were which is an essentially an extreme form of a specific religion and I'm a, I was born um, Hindu and you know, I've always I've always been raised with this idea that innately everyone has good in them okay and then to take it a step further I've also been taught to believe that those who are of faith are good people Okay, are going to follow the rules, are going to do what's right and, you know, no right from wrong and are going to do the right, not the wrong and be ethical, to put it lightly. So immediately, my, my guards went down. I had zero professional skepticism. And instead, they began to, so they began to describe these transactions that they were already doing with a larger law firm. And they essentially said, well, we've been working with this big law firm. We'd like to leave and start working with you, which should have like set off a lot of alarms um, but at the time I didn't think of it that way right I didn't think like well wait a second why would they be leaving a big law firm to come to me I have they, the big law firm has more resources more capacity more experience right all, all of the things that a developer presumably would want uh, but instead of thinking that way I was thinking oh there must be something special about me or oh yeah you know I was flattered uh, and I wanted this client I, I was so focused on getting the client and proving myself and, oh, I'm going to achieve that client, you know. Uh, so I didn't do my due diligence and I made a lot of assumptions. So I assumed, uh, I knew at this point in time that most of the big developers, not just in South Florida, but all over the country, were, were utilizing creative methods to close transactions, right? So there were all sorts of different scenarios that were being used. This was one of them. And as he began to describe these, the scenario that he had been doing, I was like, well, okay, it's, it's kind of in the gray, it's creative, but okay, everybody else is doing it, must be fine. And I assumed that the big law firms representing the big developers had already done their due diligence, right? Why, why do I need to do it? Which of course, I'm a lawyer. I should, that, that there's absolutely zero. Can I, let me ask one question to clarify here though. At your practice at that time, were you, because uh, I know you were doing well in other areas, was it fledgling and just getting started? Did you have a, I call it a book of business. I'm not sure if that's correct in the, in the law. Did you have a lot, were they about to maybe double or, or, you know, up your business by 25%? I guess what I'm trying to get inside of is, you know, there's a, there's very vulnerable places that all of us can be in. 
some are financial, some are like you mentioned, spiritual. You know, you thought these guys had a code of ethics because they, I don't know if they had the sign of the fish on their shirts or, or, or if they, you know, had certain head coverings or whatever, it doesn't matter. But, but where was without maybe a lot of detail, where was the financial piece of your practice when these guys walked in the door? Uh, I would not, I would not describe my practice as fledgling. Uh, I think that I was doing fine, uh, but there was, there's always this attraction to, to do better and achieve more and make more, right? If money is, is this object that's out there that you want to try to get. And during that time, there was a lot of money being made, and there was a statement that you made that I think is going to come into play later when we talk about ethical vigilance and the slippery slope, and that is everybody's doing it. So, you know, I think to put it in financial terms, this client basically doubled my income for those two years. So if that gives you sort of any relevance, I mean, and, and you know, the way I saw it was, uh, that meant I could, you know, lay off having to pound the pavement as much as I was and just focus on this one client, uh, and, and spend more time at home. So, uh, you know, who could have known it, it would cost me everything. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So I just, I wanted to clarify that. And one of the reasons why I've always had this theory in business that the number one is one of the most dangerous numbers. It's probably dangerous in a lot of other areas too, but you know, one client or one employee or one person running things. And it, it's not entirely the case, but I don't think it dispels that theory. It says that you probably were going to put a lot of time, energy and effort, and it was going to be very financially rewarding. So thank you for sharing that. All right, let's keep moving along. So I, uh, I start working with this developer and it was almost like a steamroller, you know, like a steamroller comes in and it plows through. And, and I, I, like I said, I never took the time nor did I make the time to do my due diligence. And, and essentially within two weeks I had my first request and it just, it just never stopped. Right. The steamroller just came through and it was like full force ahead. Now there were moments along the way and maybe later on you can ask me about those after the chronology uh, where I could have and should have thought to listen a little bit harder to my inner voice and, and really sort of stop and pause. Uh, but I got really good at ignoring that inner voice because I was just plowing through, right? So I did about 100 closings for this developer and uh, there were 100 in Tampa and about 100 in Palm Beach. And, and then it was March of 09. So like 16 months after I had met the developer. And I basically decided, you know what, I'm going to stop doing transactional work altogether. Uh, the, the units in both of these properties have now fully sold. So I stopped working with the developer and I merged my practice with my father's. My father is also an attorney. He'd been practicing for many years. And I think for many years I kept uh, saying, no, 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 I'm not gonna join you for whatever reason, there's lots of reasons. I had to deconstruct that, <laughs> but, uh, and, and once I did merge my practice, then we were focused on the litigation side. So now I'm growing our litigation practice uh, because the market had dropped by this point, foreclosures were hot, and we began to pursue the plaintiff side of foreclosures. So I was now traveling the country, uh, growing our client base, going to conferences, and you know, trying to get Fannie and Freddie and lots of other types of clients, you know, big banks as clients. Uh, so then two years go by, 
and it's May 2011 and the FBI knocks on my door. And, you know, nobody tells you in law school or in life for that matter, unless maybe you've heard my story or somebody else in your family has, or friend's circle has been touched by this, unfortunately. But nobody, you know, like human nature takes over. If the FBI is at your door, the first thing you feel is fear. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be an open book because I, I truly believed I hadn't done anything wrong. So I thought I'm going to be an open book and I'm going to meet with them. So and I let him. Attorney, and you're an attorney, and, and what I'm everybody says is better. what? What should you do? I know I should know better, right? I mean, I, sometimes I, I speak to large audiences, and people will ask me, "How did you not know?" I just didn't know. I mean, you know, I just I didn't know that I could take the guy's card and say, "Can I call you back with an attorney?" Right? I just I didn't know that I had that right. Frankly, um, it's not like I took a lot of criminal law courses in law school, right? I took like the one obligatory one, and that's it. So. Uh, I let these two agents into my office and I used to have like a circular table in my office next to my desk and we sat there and they grilled me for four hours like they were showing me documents and pictures and emails and like everything you can imagine they were showing me and I'm answering these questions definitively as if I remembered what had happened for three four years earlier uh, in, in specificity like have you ever seen this email did a light go off in your head uh oh at any point uh no because i was like in denial i was in like fast mode fear intimidation and i i obviously wasn't allowing myself to go there right i realized that um so they leave after four hours and and then nothing happens for two years so two years now go by oh they left me with a grand jury subpoena for some files so i submitted the files now two years go by and I, one of my mentors, who's the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District, who's like a dad to me, basically, had worked, had represented me on like some other side matter uh, with, the, with the Florida Bar and, uh, or so I forget, was some, some case. So I don't know, somehow they got wind of that. They must have like looked it up and they send him a grand jury subpoena for me. So he calls me. It's, it's uh, June 2013. So six years after I met this developer, right? four years after I stopped working with him. And he sends, he calls me up and he says, I have a grand jury subpoena for you, we need to talk. So for about three months, I, they want, so they wanted all my files. I'm like, okay, I'm the records custodian. They just want my files, but they're not after me. They're after the developer and the, everybody else, the buyers, because um, I'm still operating under this pretense. Like I haven't done anything wrong. So three months later, he calls me into his office and he's like, you're a target, crush me which honestly, I didn't even know what that meant, right? I, I was like, I don't know what that means. And when he explained it to me, I will tell you that I started shaking uncontrollably. I mean, <clears throat> I'm on the other side of it now, right? I'm at peace. I, I get to talk about it and share it and help people through my story. But then I would literally shake at the mere mention of the prosecutor's name, my attorney's name, I would get an email. I would literally, it was like, this was my whole life. This was everything I had worked so hard for. And the only thought in my mind that kept going through was, I'm disgracing my parents, I'm disgracing my children, I'm disgracing my community. Uh, I happened to sit on a lot of boards in Miami and be involved in our community. And, and, and I felt like my life was ending. That's what it felt like. So was that the moment that it, 
kind of, you know, there was denial and then there's that moving into denial to, I hate to say, uh uh-oh, it doesn't seem to even capture it well, but that you knew something was up and this could be, this could be bad. Is that, is that the moment? Because up to that point, it seems as if you were not really recognizing the gravity of the situation. Well, I'll say that I, at that moment, recognized the gravity, but I had not yet owned it. I was still in massive denial. Um, and, and I was in denial for a very long time, right? So the prosecutor kept calling, his name's Joe, um, Joe and I are friends now. We've now, now we speak together and you know, it's awesome. I just spoke to him yesterday on the phone, but, um, you know, it was a journey to get there, uh, a, a lot of self-growth, I think for both of us, but obviously for me more. Um, but he, um, so he kept calling my attorney and saying, look, Rashmi still has time, please. I just want to talk to her. And, and what happened was internally, I was like, but I don't know anything. What am I going to say? On principle, what am I going to say? I just, I was so stuck. I was stuck uh, and scared out of my mind. So uh, that was June. I got the subpoena. October, I had this conversation with my, with my attorney. And in April, I was indicted. So April 2014, I was indicted for one count of conspiracy to commit bank fraud and 23 counts of bank fraud. So what they did was they took 23 of the transactions of the closings that I had done and they attached it to the complaint. So I started with 24. So it was a 25 count complaint. Uh, and, and then after I got indicted, I spent about four months going through discovery. So I, most, def- most defendants don't do this, right? The attorneys do this. Uh, but I was so convinced that I'm going to find the smoking gun. I'm going to prove my innocence. And so I printed out, uh, it was like 200,000 pages of documents and 15,000 emails. And I was like, okay, I'm going to print everything out. I had boxes and boxes. My, my mom and dad live across the street. So I sort of converted like one of their rooms into a war room, really. And so every day I would take my kids. Uh, when it started, I took my kids to school. Then camp started because it was summer and I would take them to school. They were um, eight, nine and 10 or so at the time. And I didn't want them to know. So they just thought I was working on some big case. And then I would like drop them off. I would go to my parents' house and all day, this is what I did, right? I poured into these documents and periodically I would take out good pieces of documents and not so good pieces of documents. I also learned a lot about what what actually happened. So the developer was doing a whole host of other things that I didn't know that were wrong, right? They were all outside of closing, the way money was transferring hands and who he was sending money to. And so I learned a lot along the way that I didn't know at the time of closings, which I realize all of this is bad, right? Uh, and periodically, is, is the developer off the hook during this time, or is and some of this you I don't know what you can say or not say. No, no it's fine. Uh, it's all public. So the developer himself never got indicted. The principal guy, the decision maker, money guy, never got indicted. And it took me a long time to get past that and to just forgive, right? Um, the his right hand his main right hand got indicted with me. So, so there was some liability, I guess you could say. Um, now by this point, I hired somebody else to be my trial attorney because my first attorney is very well known in our community. And he basically said, look, you're going to want me as a, as a character witness at some point down the road. So I hired a guy named David Marcus, who's the best in South Florida or nationally, if you ever need anybody, <laughs> hopefully you don't. 
Um, so David, uh, who happens to be also a really dear friend, right? He lives a mile from me still. Um, and so I hired David. And so what, what, would I, what I would do is I would periodically go meet with him and we would talk about the case or his, his partner, Margot, and we'd look at the, the actual evidence, right? So now trial set for December, 2014. In August, he, he calls my, me up and says, look, can your parents and you come in? We want to have a meeting. We're like, okay. So we walk into the meeting expecting, essentially we thought we were walking into start trial prep. Like, okay, we're gonna talk exhibits, expert witnesses, trial, you know, trial strategy, like all the things you would talk about to prepare for a huge trial like this, right? And instead, he and his partner put on like a whole presentation and they basically said, okay, Rashmi, this is what you're indicted with. And if you go to trial, this is what the government's gonna use to prove their case, okay? And then this is our defense. This is what we'll use to prove our case. And this is how the government's gonna rebut, right? And then he goes, you know, look, Rashmi, I've known you for 20 years. I've known you for a really long time. And I know that you didn't go into this planning a crime. I know you, but here's the thing. You knew enough and you could have asked more questions along the way. And there were moments along the way that you could have asked questions. And look, if you go, you're my client. If you want to go to trial, we're going to go and I will do my best, but I'm telling you right now, you're going to lose. And if you lose, you're looking at like 20 years in prison. Like it's your kid's whole life. And he goes, look, there's no appeal. Like the criminal system, it's like one in a million chance you would get a, uh, some reason to appeal. And he goes, okay, so let's talk about if you go to trial, what would happen? Outside of all the evidence, a jury is gonna get so many jury instructions, but I wanna talk to you about two of them that are relevant. So the first jury instruction was conspiracy. He goes, okay, let's talk about what the conspiracy jury instruction says. The conspiracy jury instruction says, if the defendant knew even one detail out of 500 million, you, the jury, have to convict her. And he looks at me and he goes, Rashmi, your name is on every settlement statement, every, every email, every document, every check. Do you really think that a jury is going to think you didn't at least know one detail? And the thing is, is you did know. Well, and plus, there's this whole, I mean, this is the way society thinks. You're a lawyer. Correct. You, so you like, should know. Yes. yes. It's not like you're going to get a, it's not like you're going to get a jury of other lawyers that are going, well, we know that those things happen. No, you're going to get a jury of. There's a high expectation are, of lawyers to know it all. There is. And, you know, we could go down the argument of, is that correct or not that, you know, but the perception is as a lawyer, as a licensed attorney, you probably should have known. So what you're doing is you're setting the stage for, you didn't have a lot of options. <laughs> Well, and, and so listen, at the end of the day, I did, I, I should have known. I had a fiduciary, so one of the things we talked about was I had a fiduciary duty as a lawyer to ask more questions. So I'll backtrack a little bit because I didn't explain what exactly was happening. So the transactions themselves were that the developer was selling condo units with a buyer incentive. So he was incentivizing buyers to buy his condo units with a financial incentive. So what that meant was the buyers were getting some, you know, sort of financial benefit out of, out of their closing. And that's not right. And because I, even though the money itself was not flowing from me, like, so my settlement statement was like, I, call, I was like, my files are perfect. My ins and outs reflect exactly what the, the, the lender approved. 
uh, in the grander scheme of things, because in the big picture, I knew that the buyer was getting a benefit. I had an obligation to disclose that and I didn't do that. And that's technically where the fraud came. Yeah. And in my words, as a real estate guy, the, the lender would say that they were being ripped off and it was, it was not to their benefit. And really you're representing who all are you representing in those transactions? Well, technically, I mean, at least in Florida, you represent both, but the lender, yes. the lender's closing attorney. Yes. So, so that's, that's the quote unquote, the fraud is that there's someone who should have certain credit and be bringing money to the table. I'm trying to maybe explain this for non-real estate people. And then, and then Sally buyer is walking away with the, the deed to a property, a mortgage on the property and some cash as right. an incentive. So now that cash was going to her three weeks later. Okay. But it doesn't matter. Had I asked, right. Had I said it, it would have been different. So I, after this meeting, oh, the second jury instruction, I'll go back to that meeting. The second jury instruction was willful blindness. And this is actually very relevant. And, and I do a lot of conversation and discussion about this topic with C-suite and executives because this concept of willful blindness is, in my words, you can't put your head in the sand. Meaning not doing something is still doing something wrong. Like you can't pretend to not know. And that's the thing is I think that our society has gotten really good at ignoring what other people are doing or ignoring things that you might not directly think you're part of. And especially in like corporate settings and, and large organizational settings, uh, I actually say even in our homes, all of this stuff matters. Like what we do every single day, those decisions matter. And um, so ultimately he said, look, if you, well, what he said was, I love you too much to let you go to trial because he's a dear friend. So that's the hardest decision I've ever had to make, which was I like took off this fighting hat that I had been like latched onto my head for so long and I put on ownership. And that meant I took full accountability and, and I got to a place where I could truly recognize my place in what had happened and my failure in asking questions and, and you know, at minimum I should have at least stopped what was happening or I could have walked away. And, and I didn't, and I recognized that. So once I decided to plea, I then called, so I'm a very, if you can't tell, I'm a very anal person. And I, I mean, anal in the sense that like, I'm very organized. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna call everybody in my life and tell them. Because I recognized that A, this was gonna help me heal. Most importantly, like I said, I'm involved in my community, so I didn't want people in my community to read about it in the paper. I didn't know if there was going to be a press release. I didn't was know anything. It, was it public yet? Did anyone know? I, I've, ha I've had to research, you know, kind of go back on myself. Shame was a big thing that I had to deal with when we were going through things also. And it sounds like a variation or, or that was big for you also. Did people know about it until then? Or do you think they did or didn't? The, the only people that knew were the people I had told. So there were a handful of my, you know, obviously my immediate family and, and, and close, close friends um, knew. What I did was I, I took that to the hundredth degree. So I started calling, like the list included, okay, lawyers, judges, politicians in Miami that I knew that were my mentors um, and colleagues. It, it included 
uh, so I'm a runner and a cyclist. So I included my running and my cycling community that were my friends, right? That I spent weekends, hours and hours training for marathons and cycling. It included uh, my elementary school friends that I hadn't talked to for 30 years. Law school friends, my Wall Street friends. It included my kids' friends' parents and my kids' teachers. So essentially my, my entire larger community because the idea was anybody that knew me at my core, I wanted them to know, right? Not, I mean, if it was just somebody who I've seen at a party that, you know, but it had to be people that I cared about. And one by one, I picked up the phone and called them. And I literally, I could only do like five or six calls a day. Cause like, I'm telling you the story, I would do this five times. And you know, then I didn't know what the outcome was gonna be. And I was in tears on every call. And it was just, it was incredibly emotionally draining. And eventually I, uh, I got through the calls and, and at, at the end of every call, I would, I would ask for their support. So one of the biggest gifts I've gotten out of this is the recognition that being authentic and owning our mistakes and holding yourself accountable allows people to believe in you. So at least for me, you know, and I, and I, and I would venture to say this probably goes for all of us, is that if you stand up, like you said, in the face of shame, right, and be truly vulnerable, most people who, who are at that level with you will stand by you. And so the judge got almost 200 letters of support, like a binder this thick. Oh, look, I had it. Cause I was just, I, I, so he got this binder, right? Wow. So I have, normally this is on my nightstand. Um, yeah. It's, for, you know, it's all the letters of support that people- for, that, for those that might be listening to the audio of this, she just held up a bound, massive bound, book so that's that actually is probably helpful do you ever read through that do you ever go through that now well so that's the thing is like i normally keep it on my nightstand and periodically i'll read it but you know it's now been five years uh since i got sentenced and so this these were all written in a between january and april of 2015 so it's been five years and so i i hadn't read it you know frankly in a while so the other day actually last week i i brought it from my room, I put it on my desk, and I'm, I'm, I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but I'm writing my memoir right now. So I got to a place where I was like writing about the sentencing and about these letters, because the letters were, were used to represent my character and history to the judge for my sentencing. So I start opening and I start reading the letters again. Now, of course, I read all of them in 2015, but now I'm like going back and reading them, and I was hit, like bawling last week, crying, just reading them, just to sort of remembering all the people that's, that wrote for me and the people shared stories about me from just moments from my life that I don't even remember, but somehow there was something that I did tangible that this person remembered and wrote, wrote about, right? It was, it's such a power, it's like being eulogized before you die. It's the most, it's such a gift. So- But, but you're not, you're still alive, which makes I'm it even cooler. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, after I wrote these, after I got the letters um, in June, 2015, I was sentenced. So I had called everybody and invited them to be, to be present for my hearing. And I, you know, again, even though I had gotten all these letters, I mean, it was like the middle of summer. It was a hot Tuesday morning, I remember. And truthfully, school was out. I kind of thought most people were like gone and traveling. And, and I will tell you that everyone showed up. So the courtroom was packed. 
people, the marshals had to ask people to wait outside. There was standing room. All, it, was, it was the most amazing display of unconditional love and support. Um, the judge sentenced me to a year and a day in prison. And, and you know, one of the, one of the mo most amazing moments from my day, that day is, I had this sort of moment right before he sentenced me, but where I was absolutely the girl who A, thought I had to be perfect to be loved and be valued. But B, I also um, defined success by the accolades that I got, the schools that I went to, the awards that I won, the grades that I got, the money I made, right? All of these very societal definitions of success and absolutely exist in an immigrant culture, right? And on that day, when I was basically likely to get sentenced to prison, when 200 people stood there in support of me unconditionally, I recognized, you know, how I define success for myself is this, that I, it's basically, on, a, on this day where most people would say I failed because I got sentenced to prison, I see that day as a resounding reflection of my success, which is I define myself now by the number of lives of the people I've touched and inspired. And so it kind of really helps me now and fuels what I do uh, because now I get to share my story. And my thing is like, okay, if I can help one person in today's audience walk away and, and recognizing like, okay, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going to make that first bad decision, then it's, it's worth it to me. It's like the most powerful recognition of, of how I can define myself and how I want to move forward with my life. Uh, and it makes me a, such a better mom, I will tell you, because look, I still have high expectations for my kids, but hopefully I'm a little tempered. Um, and, so, and So one little pause here. Yeah. How could one arrive at uh, the word dichotomy came to my mind. I don't know if I'm using the word correctly, but the dichotomy of standing before the judge judgment with 200 plus or 200 supporters probably behind you supporting you. That to me is the most dichotomy of the opposite of about to be judged, but massive support behind you. How could we, and I don't know if there's an answer for this, so I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but how could we arrive at that without going through what you did? So I, okay. I believe we all have a constellation of stars around us. Okay. And I'm going to tell, and I will credit, um, and I'm not trying to be political, but I will credit Michelle Obama for this term because I read it in her book, Becoming. But um, when I say that, I, I believe we all have this sort of circle of people around us now. And then that constellation can get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? But, but you have to, at least for me, I, believe I had to allow myself to, to be real, right? For lack of a better term, but just to, to not be scared about people judging me to not care about pe what people are going to say about me and recognize that if somebody's not going to stand by me, I don't want them in my life. The ability to separate yourself from those that are negative and don't feed you any, don't feed your soul in some way is a very hard thing to do. But once you can do that, I think it gives you the clarity to recognize all of this good that you have, you know? Um, 
but but so the thing the thing that I'm I'm always wondering though as a coach I work with a lot of people like you do and a lot of you know possibly C levels I I work with a lot of small business owners too is that I've always studied and wondered how we make significant change or how we come to those times of epiphany like you did at that moment and we're I'm making a big deal of that time because it seems significant and and my theory is this and I'll share it and you could agree or disagree or say maybe maybe not is that it is either an intense focused effort to make that change or adjustment or or you use the word allow the um that change to occur and and then my theory is is that most people are forced into it there's a catalytic event and i think it's significant rashmi right now for the time that we're in because many people are going through a lot of significant change they are being forced either financially health wellness aren't able to visit family whatever we're we're probably going to go through a lot of upheaval and so thoughts on that is it something that we could have done on our own? And I'm saying we, I'm putting myself in the same thing because I went through quite a transformation. Sounds like you went through quite a transformation. Or is it that we have to allow a catalytic event to force us? What do you think? You know, I actually believe that every single one of us will go through a catalytic, catalytic event of some type. You know, there's billions of us on this planet and will continue to be and... Uh, I think that we're all meant to undergo some, you know, some of us will go through tragic loss. Some of us will go through bankruptcy. Some others will go through health issues. You know, in my case, I had a significant legal case um, and I'm divorced, right? So I have a lot of, uh, I think we all go through something. And, and, and sometimes people are not able to learn what I believe is meant for them to learn through those events. Uh, I see it like this. When life brings you down to your knees, what are you going to do about it? Because we are all going to be brought down to our knees at some point. And, and I see it as, okay, you have basically two options. You can either crumble or you climb out of it, right? You find the ability to, to rise again, to, um, to fight out of the despair that you think you're feeling and recognize that this is an opportunity to do something different, to try something different. So I have, I've had the pleasure and good fortune of getting to know Armando Perez, who's Pit, the artist Pitbull. And you know how I met him is a very interesting story. And, and the way I got to interact with him is because I was vulnerable and open and, and, and sort of walking in shame, as I, as I call it, and shared my story with him. And out of my, you know, sort of, this meeting that I had with him separately and where he just listened to my story like you just did, he invited me to speak at his school. So he has a school that he started for um, kids and and it's a charter school. Uh, And you know, he, the reason I first was like, the first thing I ever said to him when I was in, when I got to meet him was, you know, you have inspired me because you stand for this principle that failure is just an opportunity to try again, just start again. And that principle is something that I think, you know, people, you know, fail forward. Like there's all these things now that people are talking about. And it's, it's, I think either you read about it enough that you believe in it or you experience it and you have no choice but to live it. And, you know, and for me, I've gotten to that point where in my own life, 
I have not only myself experienced it, I've watched my parents go through it, their parents went through it, my aunts and uncles have all gone through it. So I've watched so many people around me, quote, fail or fall on their knees and, and, and rise again. And so uh, I don't know if that's answering your question. It, <laughs> it kind of does. It kind of does, because basically we're saying, I think we're agreeing that everybody's going to go through stuff. We just have to deal with it. And, and if you're not going through it now, that doesn't mean you live in fear or, but, but we, we allow for it. That's part of life. Now I, I have to say this before we, yeah, it's called growth. It's part of what living, living is, which is cool. Now I've got to say this before we move on as shocking as this may seem to you, I'm a huge Pitbull fan. <laughs> And so, anyway, we may talk off. He's a really, he's he's generous, he's an incredibly talented, but more importantly, he's a very spiritual, good person. Yeah, Um, cool. Well, well, all right. Well, I may, anyway, we may talk offline about that. Man, he's on my maybe top five people I'd love to talk to. But all right, let's do this. I'm watching my time here. And so we've gotten to the sentencing and, and I want to say this, that the research, this is how I found you. There was a Washington Post article that I think you, you had written and it was submitted. And I was doing research on white collar crime and people that had spent time in prison for a novel that I'm writing, that I'm working on. And you and I had a, had a conversation offline recently about the book you're writing and how fun most of the time writing is and how challenging it can be. But I, I, I would love for us maybe just to fast forward a little bit and because I want to talk about some of the things you're doing with the ethical vi- vigilance and, and things in the time that we have. But can you just briefly share, because I would venture to say very few people understand what goes on when you walk into a prison and you hear the lock behind you. You mentioned loss of freedom at the beginning of this. Can you even encapsulate that in a few sentences? Can you just share just a glimpse of what that might be? And, and not even that we're trying to glamorize it. It's just we don't understand it. Yeah. Um, so I had to serve time in three separate facilities. Uh, I'll start with that. One was in Miami downtown, uh, and there's a lot of background, of course, I could always give, so you'll have to read my book for that. Um, but my, the Miami downtown facility allow, is a 12-story building. Most of the floors are for male inmates. There's only one floor for females. There's no fresh air or sun. You, know, you get tiny little slits in the window. Um, you, that was the one facility where I would get locked in uh, for periods of time overnight, especially, and then for periods of time, there's a little metal toilet in there and a sink with a um, counter. And then like a, I guess you could call it a bunk bed, but there's not like a mattress. It's a tiny little bedroll foam, right? So I had like bruises on my hips from, so I sleep on my side. So, uh, I was there for 10 days and then I, I was lucky enough to leave there and get transported to Coleman, which is, um, it's a huge complex of five prisons about an hour North of Orlando. And four of them are male facilities. The one female facility is a minimum security camp. So it's the only minimum security camp for women in Florida. Uh, and so that was a, a much better facility. I spent essentially five months there. Most of my time was there. Um, there was like sort of a makeshift area where you could run. You know, there was a chow hall. There were, you know, so that was a different, that was 
I define that as like an ashram experience. So if anyone's familiar, does yoga, they might know it's sort of very bare bones um, with the addition of, of course, guards that are on a power trip most of the time um, and can be really hard on you. But if you play by the rules and you know what you can and cannot do. Uh, so I was there for most of the time. I did go for 23 days. I was taken to a county jail near Tampa, Florida in Pasco County because I was asked to testify in a totally different case in Tampa and there's no federal prison there. So I was held in this county jail, which was absolutely awful, but also very enlightening. And I, I would say I had an honor to spend 23 days with the women that were there, which you mentioned, you mentioned that in your, I think you mentioned that in your Ted talk, you talk uh, briefly about that. So people need to watch that. We'll include a link so that people can go check that out and get the, yeah. So, so I would say that my, my day consisted of, I was very, um, steadfast on holding a routine every day. Um, some people don't do this, right? Other people live in negative energy there. I was like, I'm going to get, I'm going to be really focused. So I got up and I sent an email to my kids and I worked out for two, three hours and then I ate breakfast and then we all had jobs. So I did my job, which varied over time. But most of the time I was there, I was a teacher. I was admitted, I was asked to teach math. So I taught math and English in the mornings and then I would have lunch Then I would teach math and Spanish in the afternoons. And then I would uh, read. Uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, one or two people that I got to be friendly with and we would, I learned to crochet. So I am like not domestic. So this was a big feat for me. I, I crocheted a blanket for my kids each. Two blankets I crocheted for Christmas that year. That was a present for me. Um, so my time, I, I knew that I wanted to maximize my time and get something out of it. Um, Cause again, I was like, okay, the universe is sending me to prison. What can I, I'm not gonna just waste this time. That's not what I'm about. I'm going to do something with this time. So I read, I read like, I don't know, a hundred books. So that was like a blessing that I had the time to do that. Uh, and I made, I met some interesting people and I learned a lot about just myself. I did a lot of self-reflection. Yeah. Did you always feel, was there fear? Was there at times that your safety, um, you know, is it like on TV or, you know, the movies, you know, where. Yeah. So I, you know, look, I, can it be unsafe for people? Yes, if you choose to get into a fight or if you choose to do bad things. I, A, was advised who to stay away from, so I did. And I kind of kept to myself. I kept my head down. I generally, I mean, I'm not a quiet person, but I was like generally quiet. And uh, I, I don't think that safety issue is a really big issue. I mean, I, I was more fearful usually of the guards because the guards have a lot of power and, you know, for the smallest thing, you get sent to, you know, get in trouble. So, so that, that's more what the, where the fear would come in. But, but no, I, I was never like, I mean, I was, I was just scared of the concept of prison before I surrendered. And on the day I surrendered, which I, I, I just wrote about it last week from my book, you know, it was, it was incredibly scary because of the unknown, right? we're all living in that right now. Uncertainty breeds fear, right? Because you just, you have zero control. And I, I can tell you, I am like the biggest control freak ever. I, I should say I used to be. I'm, I'm, shocked, I'm shocked by that. No, and I mean, I understand your personality quite a bit. I'm shocked that uh, shocked. control. <laughs> I mean, I used, I would, but I'm like, I have come a long way, right? Because when you go through something like that, well, control, control is your superpower, 
but our superpower can also be our kryptonite. That's really the challenge. What an overused strength can become a weakness. Yes. Yes. And so I have tried to not allow it to be my kryptonite and, and this experience of not knowing what I was going to wear, not knowing what I was going to eat, not knowing when or where I was going to sleep and what that was going to look like, you know, all of those unknowns, um, obviously has really helped me in this time of COVID because I'm, uh, none of it is scary to me in the sense, I mean, obviously the health scare is there, but being isolated or not having access to certain things doesn't scare me because I, I, I've lived it at such an extreme level that this is like, okay, we can get through this, right? I have my family around me. What more do I want? I have family so let me, and I have... Let me ask about the family because that's one question that I... I was thinking we might could, and, and I think what we're really going to encourage people to do is obviously this memoir is going to be <laughs> going to have a lot of the info that we really are going to be looking for here. But, but tell us just real briefly, you had children, younger children, you had your family. How did they handle this? And just maybe give us a glimpse of it and we'll let people get the, the real info from your book, but just give us a glimpse at what did your children do while you were in prison? So the kids were nine and 10. Uh, my son, uh, my son's older, they're a year apart. Um, so it's Kyler and Maya. And they were, when I, so when I knew for sure I was going to have to leave, um, their dad and I, so their dad and I were already separated by this point, but um, he's a wonderful man. We're like best friends now, you know? So he like, uh, he came over back to the house. He had already moved out. And so the deal was he was going to move back into the house when I left to go away. Uh, and so we, we sat both kids down and we were honest with them. And we told them, and we, I, I really believe that it was important for me to honor them with the truth. And so we, re, we sort of um, associated it in, in terms that they could understand. So in this case, it was in terms of sports because they're both athletes. And, uh, and we told them, and I had, I was lucky enough that I had 60 days to surrender. So I was able to spend those 60 days with the kids and that, that gave them time to ask really good questions and sort of just let it they digested the information and sat with it. And, and the fear obviously came and went for them. Um, and they would ask questions like, you know, mommy, can we come see you? Mommy, what are you gonna wear? Mommy, what are you gonna eat? Are you gonna be safe? Like kids wanna know their mom's gonna be safe, right? At the end of the day, they're gonna be able to come back. Um, while I was in prison, they visited me with my parents uh, several times. And, and because their entire world knew about it, they didn't have to hide from it. So they would tell their teachers, we're going to visit mom this weekend, you know, and, and so that was, they were, I would say they were surrounded by love. My parents, like I said, live across the street. So even though I wasn't here, their dad was here. My parents were, were around all the time. Um, and, and I would email them every single day and call them every single day. So I had a routine that I had set forth. Uh, and you're only allowed a certain number of minutes per month on the phone. So I limit, I like, like I would keep track of how many minutes I was talking to them and I was limited on how much I could talk to them. Uh, but, but in general, they now, okay, now they're 14 and 15. They're finishing eighth and ninth grade. They both have separately written about the fact that their mom went to prison for various essays for school. And it's, inc I mean, like it brings tears to my eyes because it's incredible that they are so proud of me, you know, and the fact that I went through this and now what I'm doing with it and how I'm sharing and helping people through it. And, and, you know, I, I tell them that, look, my goal, sorry, I'm like getting ulterior, but I tell them like, my goal is to be the perfect imperfect mom for you. And you know, they're teenagers. They're going through a lot of those typical teenage 
um, vices and, and, and temptations, right, that are out there. And, and, and I try to tell them, look, I hope that you'll make good decisions, you know, right from wrong and good from bad, but, but you might not one day. And, and that's okay. Like, you know, try to make the right decision. But if you don't, know that you can come and talk to me or dad, you know, and we will hold you accountable, but we expect you to hold yourself accountable. And look, there's nothing you can do that will make me stop loving you. Like your mom's gone to prison, okay? <laughs> there's nothing you can do. Um, so it's helped me be a better mom, which at the end of the day, it's like such an, I'm so thankful for that. Uh, Doesn't that sound odd to say though? I'm exactly. a better mom. Because I went to prison. <laughs> because I went to prison. That, I wonder if that's it, the title. Not. Is that the title of your book? Is that the title of your book? <laughs> no, that, that's a good idea. <laughs> I um, could brainstorm I, on that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. Um, I don't like. I said. I don't wish this on anybody else. I'm fortunate enough. I feel like that I have had the strength to come out of it in the way I have, and and do something good with it. And I and I and I actually believe that's kind of my purpose for having gone through this. Is I had this. Um, strength. And I, you know, I, I get so much strength from being vulnerable. It's like every time I speak on stage, I get, I heal just a bit more. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty powerful. That's awesome. There is, there's so many things I would love for us to just continue talking about. I actually, when I was making notes on this, I made fewer notes than I typically make when I'm doing research. And I'm kind of glad I did because I typically would be, oh, I need this bullet point and this bullet point. And so, and, and what I'm really thinking and I'm going to encourage, and maybe we could even circle back when your book comes out and maybe do a follow-up because I'm really going to point people to this book because the discussion we had previously, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be powerful for you and others. And, but I, I want to ask this question and then we're going to discuss how you work with clients and what you do and and our world that we're in today um, identity and labels is so important to everyone and, and it sounds like you've addressed some things with your children about not being concerned about what other people think about them but you and I had a discussion previously about just growing up in the culture you were in. And listen, I think everyone has that pressure from their culture. Some, it might be more, some might have a little extra gasoline on the fire, but, but labels that you have had attorney, successful attorney, you know, graduate of, you know, UNC and, and Columbia and, 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 you know, federal prison, you know, uh, I mean, those are some labels that you could have. What labels and identity do you give yourself now coming through all that you've come through? Yes. Now that you've, you've maybe gotten rid of, because I, I could guess if you and I talked 12, 15 years ago, you would have, we would have had a discussion about successful law practice. And you may have even, I don't want to say boasted, but you would have told me about all the transactions you're doing with this one client and all these things going on in real estate. And I would have been in real estate then too. And we would have had a great conversation, but what are the, what are the, what are the labels you give yourself now? Oh God. If any, um, mom, um, obviously I would say mother, passionate, enthusiast, um, I'm not right. Like maybe passionate consultant or passionate leadership consultant, something like that. Um, fitness enthusiast, um, adventurer, 
I, I like to call myself an empath. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm using adjectives. So I don't know if that's not, that's actually right. Um, it, it probably is because it, um, I also see myself as a tenacious fighter. And then I think I used this word earlier, but indomitable. So sort of, um, I don't know, indomitable woman. I don't know what you would call it. Um, yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting, I, I actually, as I was doing a bit of research and, and we've had a conversation before, it's almost as if you're on a mission and, 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 and you know, in some spiritual circles, there's the term missionary. I don't think it applies necessarily, but, but you have gone through something significant and you're on a mission to share that message. And it's with your children. It's with people in corporate. It's with people. And I, and I kind of pick up that it's with anyone that will hear that message. Is that correct? Poor person sitting next to me on, a, on an airplane, ask my kids. <laughs> so, you know, from that extent, there is there are times where I feel like I'm standing in testimony um, uh, because I had a lot of spiritual growth through this, just sort of like the recognition that all is well, I'm going to be okay. Uh, so, you know, like I said, I don't, I was raised Hindu, but I, I just identify myself as somebody who just has faith in sort of a higher being and um or a higher where you know whether you want to call it a being or energy or you know spirit um so yeah well and and i think that leads to i'm i'm going to ask some questions about that term that i heard you use over and over again ethical vigilance that seems to be part of that message and and there's a word that you brought up a term slippery slope and and can you can you just talk to us briefly about that, and and then with that I'm probably going to follow up with what are you doing for clients now or what have you done maybe prior to all that's going on with COVID and maybe it might even look different but be similar so slippery slope and ethical vigilance help us understand what you mean by those terms. So the slippery slope, you know, I didn't invent the term. It's obviously been around for a long time, but it's this idea that that you know you kind of take this one little step into the gray area so what i like to say is there's this ethical line of right and wrong where we're all raised with it where we all know what's right from wrong but at some point um you're faced with decisions that fall somewhere in the gray right and i always say look it's so it's kind of fun to play in the gray usually the problem is when you're playing in the gray is where bad decisions get made um and again this is in our personal lives and our professional lives right but when, when you're in the gray and you start making these decisions, it's very easy to make that first one bad decision that you don't, you kind of know doesn't feel right or in your gut doesn't feel right, but you, you, you can rationalize it, you can make assumptions about it, you can justify it with all sorts of external factors um, that allow you to do and make this decision, okay? And then it doesn't, it seems like it, everything is fine, so you don't do anything about it. And maybe then you make a second decision and then what happens is pretty soon you've gone from being at this place where you're, where you're making good decisions all the time and you start making one bad decision and then you start going down the slope. And then, you know, it's very hard to go back up the slope once you've come down it. You know, it's just very hard to climb back up. Uh, so what I say is you can anchor yourself against 
basically against slippery slope, and that's with ethical vigilance. And really, it's not rocket science. Um, I did kind of come up with this term, ethical vigilance, but it's essentially five steps. Pause, listen to your inner voice, reflect, which means like kind of look at what you're doing to do an ethical reality check. Uh, make the best conscious decision that you can, that you sense is right. And then the kicker is no matter the consequences, because likely by making the right decision, at some point you will lose something, right? You might lose a job or a promotion, money, a client, a relationship, a friendship. In my case, I didn't want to lose my client. And look what, look what happened, right? So, so when you can stop and apply these five principles of ethical vigilance, it allows you to sort of refocus. And what I say is, you know, in life, we have all these moments where if we just stop for a second, we might be able to sort of just shift a little bit. And maybe we still achieve what we want to achieve with a little shift. Um, so, and what you asked what I'm doing. So I'm doing, so I would say now, I spend most of my time um, being either a keynote speaker at a conference or like leadership retreat for a corporation or an annual event. Uh, and then usually tag on to either some panel discussions that I either help organize or I get asked to speak on um, and or a small, like smaller and more intimate workshops. So we do hands-on workshops, all focused around um, ethical decision-making and leadership. Um, I do I do a fair amount on overcoming adversity and sort of what are the skills that we need to be indomitable, basically to kind of um, make have the ability to rise out of these experiences when when life throws us a curveball, essentially. And uh, and uh, I'm I'm starting to work a lot now with actually colleges and universities. So um, colleges and universities as a whole, after the whole you know scandal that happened last year. Uh, and I've, I've been working now specifically in the sports area um, with sports coaches, um, with NCAA compliance issues, and again, this decision-making component um, and how do you not only get your leadership and coaches and players to do the right thing, but sort of the larger community as a whole, the boosters and all of that. So I'm having fun because I'm a big sports fan, so I like doing that. Um, and, and I guess you're gonna ask me what I'm doing now, so I'm writing my book. Yeah, I was asking asking what you're doing now, and I there. I guess one quick question that I want to ask before we kind of start wrapping up that is, does your experience that you've had going to prison, etc., does it close any doors for people to work with you, or does it open doors, or is it a net zero? I would say it's opened more doors than closed. Um, there are people that. Uh, actually, it's interesting. I don't, I wouldn't know which doors have closed out of it because those people have never reached out to me or called me. Uh, so, but, but I have had the great fortune and I'm humble to, to say that over the four years that I've been at home, um, I'm lucky enough that people have faith in me and believe in me and have, have, uh, you know, are inspired by me and, and are open to hearing my story and letting me help them. So that's been really um, awesome and 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 really I feel so blessed that 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 people want to hear what I have to say and 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 believe that I can help help make a difference you know in, in whatever area that I'm coming into into their space to do so uh, and you know this quarantine period has been really interesting because I've allowed myself to begin to focus on a book that I had not found the time to do so because I'm usually on the road uh, so 
you know, the kids go to remote school and I sit at my desk and I, and I try to write. So I just sent it to this woman who's sort of being my editor, sort of my local editor before I try. I have a couple of agents, you know, I'm looking for book agents if anyone's out there and wants to contact me, but I, um, I don't know. I'm like a third of the way through, I would say. Yeah. How's the writing process for you? I found it invigorating and challenging at the same time. <laughs> same. It's uh, there's some days where I'm just, I can't, I'm just, I feel overwhelmed with chaos in my head. And then other days I'm in the flow and, and it just, you know, it just spews out. I can spew out 30 pages, no problem. So it's a give and take. <laughs> Excellent. So that, that kind of answers what's next for you. So you really probably don't have a release date or finish date or you. I don't any... because once I finish my script, uh, I'm going to um, put together a book proposal, try to get it out to some agents. Uh, so if I had to guess, it'll be at least 20, 21, 22 um, before it would come out. Uh, and then hopefully when all this has passed and we can start traveling again, then I'll be, uh, available and booking, speaking engagements and consulting. Yeah. Well, it's been, I've, I've enjoyed connecting with you and I, I believe that people that are listening will want to connect with you also. Tell us how people can connect with you or reach out to you or follow you or whatever, whatever might make sense. We'll include as much as we can in the notes also of the show, but just verbally do that. And then I've got one more question we'll wrap up with. Sure. So uh, you can reach me on my website. Um, there's tons of information and links on my website, which is www.rushmiaron.com. And that's spelled R-A-S-H-M like Mary I, A-I-R-A-N. Com. Uh, all the you know Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, and Instagram are all the same. My name, Rushmi Aaron. And um, if you wanted to email me personally, it's pretty easy. It's rushmi at rushmiaron.com. Uh, and on my on my website, there is an info phone number uh, there as well. And if you wanted to book me, there is a place to do that as well to send me an inquiry. Excellent. Well, I encourage people to do that. And I'm looking forward to the book. Please keep me and the people in my office updated because we'll definitely do whatever we can to help with that message. And I, I just appreciate you sharing what you've shared. Uh, Rashmi, the title of the podcast is Seek, Go, Create. And three words we kind of put together there. Which word jumps out at you and why as we do our final question here? Seek. And why? Yeah, I think seek because I feel like I am constantly out searching and, and trying to uh, grow and make myself better, a better person and learn and, you know, and, and hopefully help others seek out the same. So that definitely, I, I would say, aligns with how I feel and believe and, and what I aspire to do every day. Yes, well... Thank you for that. And I would agree with you on that from what I'm seeing you do. And I can tell you have a passion for that. Just thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. If you would like to connect and continue the conversation, we encourage and welcome you to do that. Go to seekgocreate.com. That's seekgocreate.com to comment on the episode post or you can contact and reach out to us there. You can also find us and communicate on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those, we are Seek, Go, Create. So find us there and put 
comments, questions, thoughts. I'll even reach back out to Rashmi if there's specific questions you have of her, if you don't go through her channels. Thank you for joining us today. This has been, I just, my goal is always to talk to cool people with the microphone and the recorder going, and that's what we've done today. We look forward to connecting with you on the Seek Go Create podcast in the near future. Thank you for joining us.